0: No, we here at Radio Parallax do not know whether Judge Roy Moore was able to get the young girl out of his mind, but it does appear that sufficient voters down in Alabama had some doubts about that fact, and they, in fact, are not going to send him to the United States Senate. Aww. Now, so whether Doug Jones' uh, ascendancy to the Senate taking the place of Jeff Sessions uh, is going to make any difference, well, that's, that's another story. Oh, and uh, when it comes to the U.S. Senate, it appears that Senator Al Franken, by all accounts, uh, a leader of the progressives, was forced to resign by the politically correct, who apparently are unable to distinguish the difference between child rape and playing grab ass. Now, perhaps I'm oversimplifying in this case, but uh, the fact of the matter is no one has accused Al Franken Of the level of sexual misconduct we're talking about with the likes of Roy Moore, President Donald Trump, and numerous other celebrities like Matt Lauer, etc. The problem here, as we see it, is that someone like Al Franklin is likely to listen to people calling for his resignation and give at least some credence to the charges leveled against him. As he said in his remarks, some of the events described he did not recognize, or words to that effect. You know, I think uh, most of us, uh, if we're men, most of us have at some point or another acted in ways that we, well, maybe, maybe we strayed across the line a little bit. But it really does make a difference how far you stray across the line. If any um, erotic, shall we say, suggestions you ever made to a female were rejected, doesn't that by definition then put you in the category of someone who's making unwanted sexual advances? I mean, if we want to take this to a zero-tolerance policy, you know, which 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 works so well in the drug war when they would find, like, a marijuana seed on a yacht and confiscate it, a lot of folks recognize that the sense of proportionality in that seems to be lost, and, and it seems to be lost, as far as we can see, in some, at least some of these cases. We're not trying to downplay the serious allegations made against the likes of uh, Harvey Weinstein, etc., but come on. President Donald Trump is so in denial of any wrongdoing that he's not saying he's, he's not sure that's his voice on the Hollywood Access tapes. He's not denying that he said any of those things. He's just not sure that that particular instance, that that's, that's him on that particular tape, that at least so we've been led to believe. Anyway, apparently some people are trying to get some charges filed against the President of the United States. Um, where are all these people? who 20 years ago had their knickers in a knot over these supposed indiscretions of President Bill Clinton. Where, where, where are they now? I'm not trying to take the position that, you know, President Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky was um, the most reasonable thing in the world. On the other hand, you had consensual actions between two adults. Well, let, let's move on to more amusing things, shall we? Uh, Mr. Will Durst is always good for a laugh, and I do note that his latest column included the 10 top comedic news stories of 2017. Just, just, just a couple of them. On number nine, he had Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, as being one of the top 10 comedy stories of the year, saying that he refuses to deny that he called the president a moron, thus becoming the new hero of millions. <laughs> number one on the list, of course, was President Donald Trump who, Wilder said, uh, has single-handedly done for political comedy what legalized marijuana has done for Cheetos. <laughs> Although, my personal favorite on Mr. Durst's list was number four, Donald Trump Jr., whom he described as the Fredo of the Trump crime family. To which he added, he's going to make us an offer we can't understand. All right, and you know, because December sometimes can be a rather lugubrious month, let's just jump right now to the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? We would note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for Taiwan, where evidently a vivid rainbow appeared over the city of Taipei and lingered for a jaw-dropping nine straight hours. This is described as three hours longer than the previous world record, which was set in Yorkshire, England. And yes, how it is you managed to get a backlit... uh, Falling of droplets uh, that stayed in one position for nine hours? Well, I don't know. Strange things do happen. I gotta say that nine straight hours of rainbow is pretty cool. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for privilege. Privilege. With the news that Prince Laurent, age 54, described as the black sheep of the Belgian royal family, has complained that a proposed 10% cut to his allowance of $370,000 a year, would constitute an attack on, quote, the most fundamental human rights in a developed society, unquote. Yes, note, this is not white privilege we're talking about. It's black sheep privilege. And it was an ugly week last week for sensibility slash vulnerability, with the news that a British study has found that 74% of young folks aged 16 to 24 think the label quote, snowflake generation, unquote, may negatively impact their mental health. Now, we've got some other items here, three of them, in fact, that are sort of combinations. In fact, we'd have to say it was both a good and bad week for live theater. With the news that at a New York performance of Cats, the play got interrupted when an audience member's service dog got away and began chasing one of the cat-costumed actors theater spokesman said this is the first time one of the actual cats was involved in an incident with a dog. Is this good? Is this bad? We're not sure how to classify it. We have to say it was uh, both a good and ugly week last week for First Amendment rights with the news that Walmart has withdrawn from sale a t-shirt that threatened journalists with lynching. The shirt with the slogan Rope tree, journalist, some assembly required, was evidently popular at Trump rallies last year. This is news to me. I'm horrified to learn. Uh, After the Radio Television Digital News Association complained that the t-shirt, quote, openly encourages violence, unquote, against journalists, the retail giant took the shirt off its website saying that it clearly violates our policy. Rope, tree, journalist, this is something popular at Trump rallies. I'm, 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 not, I'm not completely surprised to have learned this, belatedly. But man, we have to say that it was both a bad and ugly week last week for standing your ground with the news that a Florida man who struck a six-year-old boy with a tennis racket is claiming immunity under Florida's stand-your-ground law. This law gives citizens wide latitude to use force, ...to defend themselves, and tennis instructor Osmalier Torre, age 30, ...claims a six-year-old boy was waving his racket aggressively when Torres grabbed it and struck him. Authorities say Torres was not acting under the imminent threat of danger. And sometimes when we think that we, you know, could have it better here, ...you always take a little bit of comfort in looking at some other places where, well, it, it's worse. Case in point, Venezuela. Evidently, Venezuela is planning to launch a new digital currency in the mode of the Bitcoin called the Petro to break what President Nicolás Maduro says is a U.S. financial blockade. The Petro, a cryptocurrency, will be backed by Venezuela's plentiful oil, gas, gold, and diamond reserves. Out-of-control state spending, currency controls, and other policies passed by the country's leftist regime have led to hyperinflation and... And the country's real currency, the Bolivar, has depreciated more than 3,000% against the dollar on black markets this year. Venezuela is under strict U.S. financial sanctions because of Maduro's power grab last summer when he sidelined the opposition-controlled national legislature and held rigged elections for a new compliant lawmaking body. Yes, so aren't you glad you're not living in Caracas these days? Now, we had hoped to bring onto this program investigative journalist and author Jefferson Morley, but uh, we were not able to make that connection this week. We do hope to bring him on in the future. His new book is titled The Ghost, subtitled The Secret Life of CIA Spymaster James Jesus Angleton. Although we will not be discussing that book today, I was quite taken by its introduction, which is rather brief, and I think I will read it in its entirety, said Jefferson Morley. When I started writing a biography of James Angleton in January 2015, the notion that a deep state shaped American politics was largely unknown. When I finished The Ghost two years later, the term commanded belief from the President of the United States and a near majority of the citizenry. In April 2017, ABC News pollsters asked Americans about the possible existence of a deep state defined as military, intelligence, and government officials who try to secretly manipulate government policy. A plurality of respondents, 48% agreed, while 35% described the idea as a conspiracy theory. The belief in a deep state ran equally strong among Republicans and Democrats. Said Morley, I did not rely on the concept of a deep state in researching Angleton's career. But I wanted to tell his story precisely because I had encountered spectral glimpses of his handiwork in my reporting for the Washington Post and for my first book, Our Man in Mexico. When I finished The Ghost, I realized Angleton and his conspiratorial mode of thinking illuminated the new discourse of the deep state. But how? Among the various theories of the deep state, the only common denominator is the role of the secret agencies created by the National Security Act which Professor Michael Glennon calls double government. Since 1947, Glennon notes, the three branches of the Republican government founded in 1789 have been joined by a fourth branch of military and intelligence organizations which wield power largely beyond the view of the Madisonian government and the voting public. Whenever the label applied to the national security sector of the U.S. government, Angleton embodied its ascendancy after World War II. Thus, The Ghost is a biography that interrogates today's headlines. Was James Angleton a defender of the republic, an exemplar of double government, or an avatar of the emerging deep state? This is his story insofar as it is known. And I gotta tell you, it's a barn burner of an interesting tale. Jefferson Morley has that uh, happy combination of being a crack investigative journalist and someone who writes extremely well. We do hope we can bring him to you in the weeks to come. And hopefully we advanced our case in bringing Daniel Ellsberg to you, someone we promised to bring on this show for many years because, well, Ellsberg has promised us many times he, he will join us. We made one more stab at it here again at his visit to the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco on Tuesday night. Daniel Ellsberg's new book is titled *The Doomsday Machine: Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner*. We still want to interview him about his book *Secret* and memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers. But before he became a social activist uh, and and brought forth to the public secret documents from the RAND Corporation, he was indeed a war planner, working out how it would be that uh, if the Russians struck us here, we would strike them there. Yada yada. It's it's a it's a frightening business. He told the audience that at one point there were 60 or 70,000 nuclear weapons between the United States and the Soviet Union's arsenals, which was overkill by a factor of about 50. One could probably argue it was more like 1,000 or or more. Um, The truth is... Each side had so many nuclear weapons that in a strange way it did sort of work at, at fabulous cost to keep the peace. It's hard to say in retrospect um, what might have happened had not both sides been afraid to launch a war against each other in the 50s, 60s, etc. during the Cold War. Um, in that end, I would like to highly recommend something available on Netflix, which I took in last week, simply titled The Bomb. It's an hour and 54 minutes describing how the atomic bomb came into existence author richard rhodes who's written uh both about the uh, the a-bomb and the h-bomb featured prominently in the documentary and there were a lot of little factoids spread among it that um i think i'll just kind of uh throw out at you other documentaries and, and 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 stories that i've read r- regarding the initiation of the nuclear program in america Soft-pedal the fact that the Einstein letter, which was sent to President Roosevelt to get him to consider starting a program to build a weapon based on nuclear fission. Well, that letter, Einstein endorsed it. He did sign it, but he didn't write it. Its author was Leo Szilard, who in fact patented, patented nuclear fission. Szilard did, apparently, as the story goes, while walking down the street to contemplate various reactions of uranium and came to conclude that if you could get more than two neutrons out of each atom splitting, it would be sustainable and thus a chain reaction would ensue. Following up on this, Enrico Fermi and people at the University of Chicago decided to test this idea, which they did without permission of the university. What was, in essence, the world's first nuclear reactor was constructed with blocks of graphite to slow slow down all these stray neutrons. Turns out the difference between some fast neutrons and slow neutrons allows you to get away with this uh, uh, (laughs) and start a chain reaction and stop it before things go kablooey. The documentary uh, explores at great length how it was that the nuclear scientists, once they realized that Hitler's Germany had fallen. The, the whole reason for building a bomb was to make sure that we had one before the Nazis did. When Germany fell anyway, they said it's not necessary for us to use this bomb against Japan, who will be defeated. But once they were handed this gift, the military was not going to not use it, shall we say. Harry Truman took over it at uh, Roosevelt's death. The documentary shows how poor Truman, he'd met once with the president during the first 82 days of office, at which point FDR keels over and dies. Truman knew nothing about the atomic bomb program and had to be brought up to speed rather quickly. The case was made by at least one of the authors that Truman didn't so much order the use of the bomb as not stop it. There was a tremendous momentum taking place to go ahead and start using these weapons against the Japanese, and Truman, well, he didn't stop it. I'm sure that's a point over which historians uh, debate, but I found it a curious point. It certainly uh, did seem evident that the military, uh, the military's momentum in the sphere of atomic weapons was something that, well, simply could not be reined in. And uh, even worse, when it was proposed by people realizing that the game had changed, that things like the United States Navy were now pretty much superfluous because in a new world war of... Of atomic weapons ships were were irrelevant well the navy didn't like that idea so to prove it wrong (laughs) they set up some atomic tests wherein they would set off weapons uh first above the water and then below um with a bunch of ships in a giant circle around it the idea was they were going to show that you could blow up an atomic weapon and then basically get on your ships decontaminate them and sail them home well that didn't work out so well and, and the whole idea that they were going to go ahead and do this in spite of being told by experts this is a really, really bad idea says a lot about um, how once momentum gets, um, gets moving in a certain direction, it is hard to change. At any rate, I, I'm really not doing this this documentary justice in my description. So I, I think you'll have to, um, to, to take it in uh, yourself, um, dear listener. It was called The Bomb, and I viewed it on Netflix. There may be other ways to do this. I don't really know. But uh, however you may uh, get a hold of a copy, I think you would um, do well to check it out. And in a more modern story from the world of, uh, of physics, we have this. Apparently, the Great Pyramid of Giza, built 4,500 years ago, uh, still has some secrets hidden within its towering limestone walls. Using some sophisticated imaging techniques called muon radiography, researchers were able to peer inside the massive structure and discover a previously undetected and inaccessible empty space measuring at least 98 feet long and 26 feet high. This is kind of interesting, but it turns out it's not possible to reach that space without damaging the historic structure. So it's noted Egyptologists may have to just settle for some guesswork as to what that chamber is all about. It was noted some months back, but I believe unreported on this program, that they've now found the smallest star ever. This tiny star, labeled ELMBJ0555-57A little b, is about 600 light years from us, and has a mass of just 85 Jupiters. But it's actually got a radius even smaller than Jupiter, about 30% smaller, about the size of Saturn. Although it's small, it's got just enough mass for hydrogen fusion, which, of course, powers the sun and powers all, su- all stars. If this star was just a little less massive, it wouldn't have quite the, the oomph to get those nuclear fires started and then would be a brown dwarf or planet or something we probably haven't yet even figured out. And out beyond Pluto, about 2 billion kilometers beyond Pluto, in fact, scientists have now discovered the tiniest object that has a ring in this case it is the Kuiper belt object Haumea last year when Haumea passed in front of a star astronomers on earth were ready and they noticed that there was a little blip drop in brightness of that star as the ring passed in front of it I think coming and going Now, we know that Haumea also has two tiny moons, so the speculation is that something smacked into it, knocked a couple chunks off, which are those moons that orbit it, and left some debris behind, which is the ring. This explains why the New Horizons people, which plan to visit yet another Kuiper Belt object, I believe, uh, a year from this January... January 2019, we're concerned about the possibility that it too had some debris around it, a ring in effect which might just take out the spacecraft as it was trying to snap some pictures. The best evidence is that it does not have such a ring structure and that we will be able to get some snapshots when it whizzes by next year. And speaking of space objects, how about the good old moon? The moon, (laughs) I note in an article which is Age Indeterminate, what I've been sitting on for a while, uh, was dated at 4.51 billion years of age. This is a little bit younger than the age of the meteorites we have here on Earth, which we believe date to the very origins of the solar system, which are 4.567 billion years of age. The current theory is that um, the Earth formed about that same time, and something like 60 million years later, it got smacked into by an object about the size of Mars. These estimates were based on study of zircons and the radioactive elements uh, in the rocks brought back by the Apollo astronauts. I don't know, 10 million years here, 10 million years there. I mean, you know, who's going to care, really? Ah, but no, we, we do appreciate precision in, in all things. Although we do have to marvel sometimes at the things that are tackled in the world of science. They did a study recently in Sweden that just, well, we, we just we just have to talk about this. It's from an article, a brief piece that appeared in New Scientist magazine. Go to the magazine, female fruit flies produce a pheromone to attract males. When Peter Witzel and Paul Becker at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences in Uppsala isolated this pheromone, they wondered if it explained an anecdote about a fly changing the taste of wine by landing in it. And yes, please temporarily hold all jokes about waiter. What's this fly doing in my soup? But no, this team in Sweden enlisted a panel of eight wine tasters and asked them to examine glasses of wine. Some glasses had previously contained a female fly for five minutes. Yes, doing the backstroke, we presume. Some had held a male fly and others had no contact with flies. The tasters all rated wines in the glass that had contained female flies as having a stronger and more intense smell. And the glasses of Pinot Blanc that had been tainted by female fruit flies or trace amounts of pheromone, the tasters found to have a taste somewhat unpleasant. That's when as little as one nanogram of the pheromone was present. This suggests to the researchers that even if you quickly remove a fly, it may have already spoiled your wine. <laughs> I'll tell you right now, you know, a fruit fly is one thing. And if a house fly lands in your bottle, in your glass of wine, you, you should dispose of it. But uh, even with fruit flies, this story gets worse. They quoted the researchers as saying, the compound is not only detectable in tiny amounts, it's also hard to wash off which means that the smell might even stick to the glass after dishwashing. I don't know, this is probably, you know, you probably should keep in mind that if you're hanging around a university and someone says, hey, would you mind tasting some wine we have over here? You just, you you may want to give it it a a miss. And here's a random item, not necessarily related to imbibing wine, but maybe it is, Uh, pulled out of the Week magazine which is as follows. The recent string of high-profile workplace sex scandals appears to have made employers nervous about their holiday office parties. A survey by Chicago-based consulting company Challenger Gray & Christmas found that only 49% of the companies plan to serve alcohol at their holiday events. This is down from 62% last year. And since it is the holiday season and America is uh, no doubt caught up in shopping mania, I think that hopefully explains the ungodly traffic jams uh, I've been experiencing and perhaps you too have been experiencing of late, dear listener. But here's some possible relief. New story from Bloomberg, and I quote, Warren Buffett's Fruit of the Loom is joining the subscription craze. Guys can now get their boxer briefs from the Berkshire Hathaway-owned brand through a new subscription service called not Fruit of the Loom, but Fruit to Your Door. Shoppers can buy a six-pack of skivvies, among other products, and have them reordered every six months at a 30% discount. The program, available for men's and women's garments in the U.S., can also be gifted. This does appear to be a godsend for those who loathe the prospect of having to actually get in their car and drive to a store in order to purchase underwear. We were surprised as anybody to see earlier this week that the mayor of San Francisco, Ed Lee, at the young age, relatively young age of 65, died suddenly of an apparent heart attack. The thing that struck me about all of the news stories about the mayor's passing was the description of him being taken to Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. When did they rename San Francisco General Hospital after the Facebook founder? Right after he gave him a bunch of money, I presume. It's my turn to call for the ding sound effect. Yeah, we're pretty sure that's how the Zuckerberg name got attached to San Francisco General Hospital, the same way that David Geffen's name is now attached to the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine. Well, not to be outdone... We will be initiating next week the christening of the new Radio Parallax doghouse in my backyard. I think we reported last year but have not yet followed up on it that uh, Mark Zuckerberg over on the island of Kauai is trying to find various landowners within the estate he owns, natives who were granted uh, some tracts of land by treaty, Back in the 19th century, in fact, when this private property got established on the island. Uh, Apparently, Zuckerberg wants to find them, give them money, portraying it as, well, no one's going to be forced off the land. We just want to, like, find these people and give them some cash in exchange for the land. But the real reason is, of course, is that these people might be able to claim rights to access the ocean that would then run through Zuckerberg's property. The fact of the matter is courts almost always will award an easement that allows landlocked owners to cross another property to get to public areas. Anyway, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax.